Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Owen Eastwood, performance coach currently at England Football and also Harlequins, formerly of organisations such as England Rugby, South African Cricket and also author of Belonging, the Ancient Code of Togetherness, which is one of the finer books I've had the pleasure of reading in the past few years. Owen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Connor. Great to connect with you, mate. Owen, I mean, the pleasure is all mine, first and foremost. But, um, you know, the first question which we ask every guest that comes on the show is typically a football-based question. It's what is your earliest football memory? But I suppose what would be more apt for yourself would be how did your childhood influence the type of work that you are actually currently doing today? Well, um, actually, I'm happy to have a crack at the, the, the normal question, and that's football has never been my number one sport, but it is a sport that I've been interested in and enjoyed. Uh, and I grew up in New Zealand, and my first memories of football were twofold. One was once a year, the FA Cup final would be played, um, and it would be live on television New Zealand. And, and so it would be about 2 o'clock in the morning, on a Sunday morning. And, and that was the only other time we would get up in the middle of the night to watch a game would be when the All Blacks played. So that they were very cool memories, uh, you know, Manchester United and Arsenal and West Ham and some really epic FA Cup finals in the 1980s, I remember. So that, that was really um, good experiences. And then the other thing was at 12 o'clock every Sunday, the previous week's highlights from the English football would be played. So by that time, the actual results of that weekend had already happened. So we're literally over a week behind. But we were, but it was so compelling. It was just a one-hour highlights package. And that was your thing. You would have that with your lunch on a Sunday at 12 o'clock, watch all these amazing football players, and then move on. And then the other thing was in 1982, New Zealand qualified for the World Cup finals for the very first time. And we managed to have an epic pull with Brazil, Scotland, and Russia. And against Scotland, we were 2-0 down and actually got it to 2-all and then lost 5-2 and lost the other ones. But, yeah, so they're they, they great memories, mate. And, and I'm a performance coach now. I work equally in sport in the corporate space. But my passion for sport was all about rugby, cricket, and football, really, as a kid. Amazing. And, of course, Owen, I mean, we spoke briefly after... I mean, the majority of us were made familiar with you and your work, you know, in a transformational time, really, for English sport, for both the rugby and the football teams, where they were really at a, you could say, a crossroads, a search for meaning and perhaps a broader purpose. I mean, going into that space, is that something which you could have related to on a personal level? Well, my whole journey, I, I was a lawyer, you know, that's what I qualified as, and I worked as a lawyer for 20 years, so... Um... I became a performance coach accidentally, and that's just the truth of it. Uh, you know, I had different contacts and clients who were in the sports space, and they would just talk to you about what they were doing. And then over time, when people, you build relationships with people, they forget the fact you're a lawyer, and they just start talking about, you know, what their experiences and, and some of the challenges they've got. And so they started talking to me a little bit more about some of the challenges as leaders and culturally. And... And, and, and I sort of got interested in it and, and, and started throwing advice around, even though I wasn't really qualified for it around by that. So I think I've always been interested in an environment. I've always noticed, even as a little kid, 
there'd be certain environments I'd be in and I'd just feel friggin' awesome. Like I'd feel really confident and I'd really, and I'd feel quite, you know, like happy to do things and express myself and take risks and, and throw ideas in there and, and question things. And, and maybe if I didn't understand something like asking for clarification like this, but then I noticed as a young age, from a young age that there would be other environments where I was the opposite. Like I felt really, really tense, like a little bit anxious. Um, I, I felt like I didn't really want to be noticed. Um, I definitely didn't want to express myself. There's no way I was going to throw my ideas into the mix. Like, and, and, and why was that? Like, who is the real version of me? That was always an interesting question. So you'd be in a classroom one year and this version of Owen Eastwood would be playing out. And then the same group of people go into another classroom with a different teacher the year after. And I was a shadow of myself. And I was always, well, what the hell is going on there? Like, who are you? And so it was always very intuitive for me that, uh, you know, we're massively influenced by our environment. And when I first became a performance coach, I was exposed to this meta study from the English Institute of Sport, which said that 70% of human behavior is determined by whatever environment you're in. And then I just thought, this is friggin' bingo here. That, that makes complete sense to me. And now that I can understand myself a bit better. So from a working point of view, it's been interesting where you've got some of these high, you know, so-called high-performing organizations who just put so much focus on the tactical, the technical, the player development, all of that, but actually have not put a lot of attention to the environment. And you know, to put it bluntly, you can have the best talent in the world and royally screw that up if you create a flawed environment where they can't be themselves and express themselves and perform. I think people always want to rush to conclusions on too and there's that great old debate about being a top-down or a bottom-up approach but I'd argue why not have both I mean you could be top-down in the organization but bottom-up with the individual and it's all a mirror of perspective really at the end of the day but what you touched about upon there at the beginning is absolute golden because for me it just sounds like you having those conversations at the law firm really were enhanced peer-to-peer learning and as we spoke about you know off camera that's when you're really moving beyond the transactional conversation absolutely mate and as a lawyer we we used to want to be a trusted advisor to a client so what that meant was you know you didn't have to be an, an absolute expert on the law you didn't have to be the best advocate you didn't have to be the best person at writing contracts well, what you really wanted is a client to pick up the phone to you and say, hey, I'm in a spot of bother here. Can we talk about it? And, and sometimes it was a legal conversation, but often it wasn't. And so, that, again, I, I, I was not technically a, an, an amazing lawyer, to put it mildly, but I, I would have those conversations where people would, for whatever reason, trust me to talk through things. And so what I realized now is I was really coaching even then. It wasn't my job title, but that's what I was good at. So now I don't see a lot of difference. Um, of course, I go in there and help evaluate and design environments. So that's true. But, you know, once you've got a plan together and you're cracking on with it, um, a lot of it is purely relational. It's just people who've got to know you and they trust you and asking you for help um, or for ideas. It's a beautiful place to be in, mate. And I think that's for, for all of us who coach. That's where you want to be not just the technical expert who's, who's telling everyone what to do, but actually people who 
as someone who people come to. They come to you and they ask you, can you help me? Can you explain something? Can you teach me something? And just think about that from a coaching point of view. How often do we tell people what to do? What's the percentage of time that is we spend on that versus the amount of time people are coming to us? You know, and um, you know, I'm clear about that. I wanted my door to be open and I want people to come to me and feel and trust me because they know me and I, they know they care about them. And, and I'd rather help people that way. You qualify that, what you were doing at the start in your early days at the law firm as coaching? Or would you just say, that's being a good listener? Because I think the uptake in this sort of stuff, and for example, I mean, you know, I mean, what I think of you and your work, it's absolutely unbelievable. But I think there's always a bit of a lag in uptake in terms of when these concepts come around, you know, as usual, as usual, and as to be expected. But I think a lot of people sometimes own or just thrown off when we say, that's great coaching. When in reality, if you break it down, if you make it practical for people too, which there's countless examples in your book, for me, it's just empathy. It's common sense. It's being a good listener. It's taking the time out. No, I say good, mate. I really believe, I, I agree with you. Like, and that sounds a bit cliched, and for some people, they might roll their eyes. Or hopefully not, but so much of it is relational. You know, I can go into an environment, and I do this all the time. You know, I typically work on four or five teams, organisations at a time. You know, I never employed by anybody. I, I, I come in, try and add value, and have an impact, and get the hell out of there, and then come back again when I can, you know, do it well. So, you know, for me. I could notice very quickly whether an environment is truly relational or actually very, very transactional. I mean, it's uh, uh, with experience, you can pick up on that. And if you are prepared to invest in building a relationship with each individual, like Gareth Southgate's done with England players, you can go in a completely different space with them. You can have a much richer conversation around their well-being. You can have a much richer conversation about how they really feel they're performing. You can have a really honest chat around what's the gap between the best version of yourself and what we're getting right now. Like they'll be vulnerable. They trust you. They know you actually care about them. I did I had an interesting interactions with um, a very famous professor at Stanford University for my book, and he explained that trust, in order to get the most deepest form of trust, an individual needs to know that that other person at some level cares about them. That's where the deepest level of trust will come from. You can't just have it based on other factors. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully people are nodding, but you are capable of different things as a coach if you've got a relationship with someone versus if you just hold yourself out as a so-called expert who is a teacher or manager. Um, no doubt about it. Yeah. And <laughs> I was speaking about this um to one of my good friends recently, Johnny, Jonathan O'Neill, give him a shout out. But you feel at times as a football coach, you're nearly prostituting knowledge upon the player without having that relationship because that's what it feels like. You feel like, <laughs> you know, you feel like a dodgy car salesman. Owen. That's what you feel like. Um, for me, it's really blind coaching at times. But I mean, moving on, I mean, the title of your book is Belonging. And it's fascinating and it unpacks some of the fantastic work which you are doing. I mean, Owen, to you, what exactly is belonging and how important is it to the human species? Well, belonging is actually measurable, mate. 
And I think a lot of people don't pick, don't realize that they think it's a bit of a fluffy concept. There's nothing fluffy about it. If you are with a group of other human beings and you feel you belong, we could take a blood test of you and we would show that your anxiety measured through stress hormones is down and other hormones, which are very energizing for us, such as oxytocin, the hormone you, that, that appears when you feel connected to people around you and you trust them. Dopamine, that motivational hormone, they'll be up. So when, when people feel a need, uh, their need to belong has been fulfilled, they are less anxious and they're more energized by those very positive and, um, hormones. So you can actually measure it. And some teams do it. I know some teams actually take um, samples of their athletes from time to time just to work out exactly where the anxiety and stress levels are in that group. So the origins of it are very simply part of our evolutionary story is that from the moment we left the forest and went into the grasslands, our ancestors, three million years ago, you had zero chance of survival if you were isolated and alone. In that environment, you had no chance. The only way that we could survive is as a group of people um, to protect the young and the old, to get hunt, all those things that were necessary to survive that was only possible in doing it in a group. And so what happened over time is that our biology started to reflect that reality. And therefore, if we were alone and isolated, we would have this anxiety and we still do. You know, there's statistics now that people who feel socially isolated and, and, and suffer from chronic loneliness are four times more likely to have a mental health issue and four times more likely to have a cardiovascular condition. So we think we're pretty sophisticated and independent. We're not. We still are completely reliant on belonging to a group of people who will have our backs and take care of us. You know, and family is the fundamental version of that, but other teams and organizations and communities. So when I'm working with a team, we want to get to that place where everyone feels safe, everyone feels they belong, respected, seen, um, that they fit in, and their anxiety levels will come down and we can energize them through other hormones rather than fear. And is belonging the start on or is it the end? That seems uh, that's, that's, a great, that's a great question, mate. Um, belonging is never a achieved state. I could be in your team for 10 years and then I could come in tomorrow morning and you could say something which makes me have an anxiety reaction about whether I belong here or not. You could just take me aside and say, hey, you've been a great servant, but I'm not too sure whether we really want to have you in this team next year. Now, that may be rational, rationally fine, you know, like a good reason for it, but that would give me an anxiety reaction. And it's not just because, you know, I'm sad or whatever that my career with the club might be coming to an end. It's actually more visceral, more, more hormonal. It's like what you're saying is that I might have to leave this tribe. And, and that will create anxiety. So I, I do mention this, you know, that you ne it's never a, a box that you've ticked. You know, when people come in on the first day, we can do great things to send them cues that you belong here and be quite explicit about it, like literally telling them, this is why we've selected you or why we've contracted you. I want you to understand this because you belong here and you've earned the right to be here. So we can do those things. So that's good. So people might get that sense of belonging pretty quickly. But you can, every single day is a new test 
of how we feel about things. And I'm sure you've, you can relate to that. Some environments, you be there for years and you never really ever get to that place. No, and you know, for want of a better phrase, I suppose, I mean, you hear a lot of things being thrown out about culture and it's almost as what you were speaking about earlier on. When you hear someone speak about culture now, you want to roll your eyes because it's become too cliche, too mainstream. But for mm. me, it's just, it's essentially what you do. It's not what you say. And those actions have to be in alignment with your environment, which we spoke about earlier, or you spoke about earlier on. 70% of the behaviors you have on what a daily basis stem from that environment you mm. occupy, which for me feeds into the next point being, why do small teams in your view on, why do they, or why are they even able to cultivate that sense of belonging better than many other facets of society today? Well, it's hard to, hard to generalize because, you know, I've been involved in some quite big organizations where people have the sense of belonging and then in smaller teams where it's an absolute nightmare people drive in the morning park up and having a panic attack you know literally before they go into training because it's 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 a it's a fearful environment there isn't any they don't think the coach cares about them it's an aggressive um high anxiety place um and every day you feel like this could go wrong you, you just don't feel settled so it's hard to generalize. Um, I think one thing about belonging is there's a couple of aspects to it. First of all, you know, whether people are making you feel that you belong. So the cues they send you, the signals they send you. Um, secondly, belong to what? And, you know, I talk about this in belonging. You know, Michael Owen is a, quite a nice example. That he goes to Real Madrid and he just won the Ballon d'Or a year or two before. So he's one of the best players in the world. Never, ever at any point do they tell him what he belongs to. There's no story of Real Madrid that's shared with him. And so he, he feels like this shirt's special and this place is special and everything feels special, but no one's actually told me what is this tribe that I've joined. And actually that leaves a big hole when people don't do that. When he went to Manchester United, it was the opposite. Alex Ferguson invited him to his house during the recruitment, sat him down and told him the story of Manchester United in his living room. The, and, and right from the start, the origin story, the um, Busby Babes, you know, th right through and explain this is who you would belong to. And that was very compelling for him. So, you know, those elements, some leaders understand it and some don't. I think, you know, with Gareth Southgate and the football team as an example, it's, it's not a nice, it's not because he's a nice guy or he's trying to create a nice place. I think that's where so the media don't understand this and sometimes they misconvey it. What's actually happening is it is stressful playing for your country. It's stressful when probably over half the population are watching tournament games on TV. It's stressful when games are tight. It's stressful when games go to penalties. So what he is trying to do is create an environment where they conserve as much energy as they possibly can. So rather than sitting in their rooms between games, marinating in stress and adrenaline and exhausting themselves, actually you create an environment where everyone feels very, very comfortable, feel they belong, feel relaxed, have some fun, socialize. And then what it does is it preserves energy so that you can you got more during training and during games. And it's interesting. I've watched different teams have been involved in. 
And as they get the culture right, the media start talking about how fitter they look and how much more energy they've got. Harlequins rugby is a classic example, but I, I've had it a number of times. And as I love that because to me, that's a huge marker of success is that because we're not wasting and leaking energy every day through a stressful environment and people not feeling they belong and, and feeling under threat, they got more to use in training and in the games. And it's awesome when people see that, and although they don't understand the reason for it. So, you know, Gareth isn't doing it because he's a nice guy and he wants to create a nice, comfortable place. He's got an edge to him as a coach, like every other coach. He wants to optimize the energy of that group of people. And I think he's got a very smart way of going about it. Needless to say, I mean, there are numerous stories being told within these teams on and, you know, we're speaking about teams now and such as the English football team and you do need big leaders within that, within that group and something which you quoted on the podcast before, which I thought was absolutely golden, was that, you know, good leaders, they're able to create a Netflix series about us and I think the air for storytelling really is only coming into, you know, it's only coming into fame now and, Garrett Southgate, some of the people, that, some of the other people you've been able to work with, it's been absolutely fascinating building that or cultivating that vision for the future and putting in all the necessary steps to get there, but being brave enough to do so. Mm. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, my personal view is that if you have an environment where the coaches are just talking about the process all the time and don't want to talk about winning don't want to talk about what our goals for the season are um to me that is going to de-energize a group of people like why the hell would you become an elite athlete if you actually didn't want to compete and friggin' go for it and what like i i i know the thinking is that you don't want to overburden them with outcome and, and etc but i've been in a few environments where i've got very frustrated and had to sort of sort of challenge the coaches around this like this seems unreal to me we're talking about today's training and then this week but we're not talking about what the hell we're trying to do like we're not dreaming and therefore there's so much dopamine in those players we're not tapping into so i accept on the other end of the spectrum if we're just going to talk about you know we've got to win the competition we've got to do this that's not particularly helpful either just obsessing on outcome um, that can make people incredibly stressed out and shut people down as well. So I think there's a place in the middle. And I think that place is around having a strong sense of identity that we're trying to live out on the field and off the field, but also incorporating some brave, bold goals about what would a brilliant experience look like rather than let's take up one game at a time over nine months, see what happens. I mean, if I was an athlete, that wouldn't motivate me at all. And I think a large part of it too is if you want better answers, ask better questions. And for me, no matter what domain we're in, we're all playing long-term games with some people and with others, not so much. But I'd like to think too, no matter whether or not you're at the Euros, the World Cup, or most recently, Nation League's qualifiers, you know, for me, a lot of the behaviours that come from the environment, alone, they are goal-motivated. And if we're setting goals at the start of the season, that should be the motivation that carries those, those behaviours and leads us through. Which for me, it's kind of interesting to kind of get your view and get your take on, I mean, what are the typical times or perhaps what are the lifespan of a team or of an organisation or a federation that you would go into 
to investigate because for me to for people to be able to be conscious of what's going on you know it's not going to occur at the very start it's only when they've come across some trials and tribulations so to speak yeah that's a really good question i've not had that question before you know when i look at my own career you know i worked with the south african cricket team that was off and on over a 10-year period um I think this is the seventh year of working with the FA and and England men's team. Um, I, I think what happens is I don't really believe that people have a shelf life. I, I think if they if their energy levels can be sustained and they have a freshness in what they how they do their work, then I think and there's plenty of examples of that of coaches having very very long periods. If people have got one mode. And particularly if it's quite aggressive and energy sapping, then yeah, there's a shorter shelf life for that. I appreciate that. And there's some quite famous football coaches where they can't sustain a group of people holding together for more than a couple of years. It's just too demanding um, from an energy point of view. But there are other coaches that are able to, oh, I'm a big fan of Pete Carroll at the Seattle Seahawks, have, have had a really disproportionately successful decade. And he's 70 and he's cruising on year 11 now. They're all good, you know. I mean, they've lost their quarterbacks. I don't know how competitive they are this season, but, you know, they've been over-competitive for a period of time. So I don't think it's about that, mate. I think it's about making sure the environment is one where people enjoy, people are energised, people feel they're growing. Um, people love the fact that there's a coach there that cares about them and their family, you know, and, and why would you want to get rid of them? I think one thing I worry about a little bit is that when Gareth's tenure with England ends, that the FA capture the learnings of that period of time. You know, it's been six years where the team has been competitive in tournaments. It's been six years when the players have spoken positively about being in that team. And to me, if we just say bye-bye at some point and then just bring someone in to reinvent the wheel, I fear for that. I don't because I think there's some really good things that he's done, which are not just about his personality or his coaching style, but are things that the FA might want to say, actually players seem to really enjoy when the space is made for them to connect. They seem to really enjoy when they're asked the question, what would a great tournament look like? What do you want to achieve together? They really seem to respond well when we ask them, how do you think we beat this opposition? How do you think we should train this week? Um, they seem to respond really well when young players come in and we get the senior players to take care of them and to induct them and to mentor them. You know, uh, there are things that aren't just about Gareth, there are things that could become cultural and, and passed down. My fear is that that doesn't happen and someone can maybe more dictatorial and we sort of go back to the pre-Gareth era where players were marinating in stress in their... <laughs> in their rooms in between games and the team really struggled. I think, you know, not speaking from too much experience now on, but there's certainly different phases in life. And I think it's a large part of this too is being humble enough to accept that change and evolution really is inevitable, which brings me on to one ancient Maori belief I wanted to bring up called Wakapapa. I hope I've pronounced the of that correctly. But for me, Owen, and as I said this to yourself before, coming across Waka Papa in the book was an absolutely seminal moment for me because it was just 
it seemed something so profound, but so practical, so very much implementable. And it's just, I think you do a much better job of explaining it than me, to be honest. Well, it's, it's a, I'm part, I'm a New Zealander, and ancestry is English, Irish, and Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand. Um, when I was about 12 years old, the Maori tribe that we are part of just explained this idea, and you pronounce it very well, Waka Papa. And they just said to me and, uh, that my friend, this world, this life is not all about you. You are just one part of a line of people. It goes all the way back to our Genesis story, our first ancestors. And that can be the tribe, can be my family, can be my nation, can be my school, can be the sports team, can be any, any community I belong to. This is, this is about any group of human beings. And they said that you're just part of, and, and your arms are interconnected with those who have come before you all the way back to our first ancestors. But also you're part of a line of people that will come after you to the end of time. And the metaphor they use is the sun first shone on our first ancestors and just slowly moves down this line of people. And right now, signifying that we are alive, you and I, as the sun is shining on us. It, it's moved on to us from the people who came before us and the different teams and communities we're part of. But the sun is not going to be on us forever. It's going to pass on to those who follow. And they explained to me that, you know, a strong culture is one when the sun moves on to you that the values and the purpose and the rituals and traditions and the vision of what success looks like are all things that are, are passed to you. So you understand our identity story of who we are and what makes us different and what makes us a little bit special. And so when the sun's shining on you, you're really motivated to, to add a chapter to this incredible story. Again, of whether it's your school or your family or your nation or, or a sports team. And, and it motivates the hell out of you. Love that sun on our back. It feels freaking great. And so we want to maximize our time in the sun. And it might be a long time in the sun or it might be a short time in the sun. It doesn't matter because it's impermanent, whatever it is. But the other thing we really want to think about is that this line of people that follows us, we want to set them up to do really well and be able to compete hard and be successful. So rather than us just sort of trying to maximize our own glory and our own reward, while the sun's on us, why don't we actually create conditions for them to thrive in, just as we do with our children? And so it's the past, the present, and the future all, all working together there when the sun's on us. And that's what I was taught, the way to think about life. And, you know, we say with England football team, we've spent time just connecting the team to the team that came before them from 1872. The, our, the players know about that team, know about the captain know that he's buried in North London, um, know it's 150 years this year since that team first played, and know and Harry Kane will go and see his grave this year. Not in a big publicity stunt, but because he cares and he's interested in that he's the current captain, the sun's shining on him, and the shirt's being worn by him, but that was the first captain. Um, so we talk about that, but then we've talked about when we go to the World Cup in Russia or the Euros here in Qatar, what is the story, the chapter that we want to write? Well, the sun's on us. What do we want to write? That we're a bunch of selfish, overpaid, arrogant individuals who didn't compete? <laughs> no. Nah. 
And that's not it. We want our country to watch us and feel unified and inspired and that feel that we're a really, really good representation of the best bits of this country. We want to entertain them. We want to give them evenings where they spend with family and friends and just proud to be English. Um, and we want to friggin' fight like hell and we want to come home with this one of these trophies. And then the story, and then that chapter can be finished and then we'll pass it on to someone else to write the next one. So, you know, that spiritual idea from, from Maori is an idea that any of us can relate to. Incredible. On a personal note, you think if you didn't meet the Maori tribe that day, you'd be doing what you, you'd, you'd be doing what you're doing now in this day and age on, in terms of writing no. the book and belonging, in terms of, no. No chance. I had a good chat with a, f- a friend this morning who is a, is a psychologist, performance psychologist, and he's looking to maybe do his own thing. You know, he works for a governing body at the moment. And, uh, you know, it's just my personal view is that why you or I or anyone else should sort of sort of have a model and be the deliverer of a model and sort of mimic other people. I don't believe in that. I think all of us have our own story. We have our own beliefs, which are wrapped in our own personal stories. Um, we all have our preferences and our strengths. And I think it's incredibly important to encourage you, but all young coaches, anchor the way you coach in your own belief and sense of identity. And it'll be authentic. It'll be different. One, if you're prepared to share it with people, they will feel close to you. They will go to another level in terms of connection. And you can really just friggin' be yourself. And uh, there's certainly a lot of people in high-performance environments, I think, who are trying to be technically correct and to follow models and methodologies and football tactics but they're not it's not human enough not personal enough that's my personal view and that's my own story is that i learned those things as a young guy and i've ta- i take them everywhere i go with me they never get left um, at the door you see the future conversation headed on this own in terms of leadership in terms of high performance i mean just what you alluded to there really does kind of give a lot of pondering for thought for not only myself but for many other coaches which i'll know will be listening to this yeah, I mean, on that point, I know that you're unique. I know that you are, you're one of a kind. Um, and I want you to coach that way, you know? And and if I went to go and watch you coaching and I don't see that, I'll, I'll kick you up your butt. Like, I feel like you're holding something back from this group of people. But if you're not doing that, if you're just being, trying to mimic someone else or... I think the way, well, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think coaching going forward there'll be more of an emphasis in creating a healthy environment for people and not because someone's looking at us and might do an investigation and and we get in trouble or discipline it's not that it's just simply because healthy athletes are going to have more energy and are going to be fitter and more available to play than people who are breaking down physically and mentally because of the way i coach them and because of the environment that they're in so I think well-being and that type of thing has been like a peripheral. Oh, okay, someone's got a mental problem or struggling. Let's they can go and have a one-on-one with the psych. I think those days are over, mate. 
I think as a coach, you're going to have to take responsibility to make sure that your coaching environment is healthy, that people can feel well there, that they're not going home um, completely broken, that they're not having a panic attack in the car park before they start the day. Um, and, 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 and there's a good performance reason for that. It's not just um, you know a, a progressive idea. So I think that's going to be part of it. I think the people who can lead us into that space, that'll be good. I, you know, I like, like, you know this, mate. You know, I like the fact with teams that I go and see in the morning, they'll, they'll, there'll be an iPad and they'll fill out their sleep in their, in their last evening and the quantity and quality and their hydration and their food. And then they'll be asked between one and 10 on energy and one and 10 on mood. That is beautiful. That is great. I wish my siblings had that experience in their own working environments, which they don't. So that stuff is great, but the problem is there's a disconnect between recording and capturing that type of data and actually friggin' having an environment which honours it. So, you know, you might get people with a low mood and low energy and then they, they're brutalised at training <laughs> or, or, you know, no. So I just think we, we're not far away, mate. But I think we've got to be a bit smarter that if energy and mood and these things are important, then we've got to roll as a leader and as a coach to make sure that we're enhancing those things, not just observing some scores once a week. Some rare points there, Owen. Perhaps another for another day. But um, I mean, this has been a conversation. <laughs> Look, maybe pair two, who knows? But um, this has been a conversation I've thoroughly enjoyed. And as we begin to close, I mean, every guest that I have on, I ask them, what advice would you in fact have for anyone who's wishing to enter the realm of elite sporting performance? Yeah, I mean, I'll go back to what I was, was alluding to before. I know lots of people would love to work in the space that you and I are able to do, and we're very fortunate. I, I really would not only encourage, but challenge people to find out what their unique selling point is. You know, don't try and just say, I've got all these qualifications and I know this, that, and the other, and, you know, I can come in and not screw it up. No. I want to see your personality and I want to hear your story. If I'm recruiting people to come in, that's what I'm asking. Tell me your story. What, and, and tell me, what do you really believe in? And, what, and how does that come out through your coaching? And, you know, I have had not in the, in the distant past, I've had people I've interviewed and I've asked them, what's your coaching philosophy? And they can't even answer that question. So I'm, I'm having a ref. Well, why are you coaching? You know, well, I finished playing and I didn't, you know, like, that's a terrible answer. I, I'm coaching because I, I love being part of a team. I love seeing people grow and get better. I love creating an environment where people can be a wonderful version of themselves. I'm a competitor. I love creating an environment where we go and compete and maybe outperform our raw talent. You know, I want to hear some passion and some real honesty around why we want to be successful. So I'd encourage everyone listening, if you want to get in there, spend a little bit of time on uh, and, and reflecting yourself as to what you believe in, what experience you want to give people, and make sure that you get that across when you're you know, looking for opportunities. Absolute goal there. Owen, I mean, I've had so much so much fun I suppose I don't know if that's the right word actually or most apt but 
the last 40 minutes have been brilliant. Um, plenty of gold there. I mean, I'm here in my notepad scribbling away, trying to keep up with yourself. But um, I'm sure, I mean, if I'm getting this much value, countless many others will too. So Owen, hope you had as much fun as I did. But uh, thanks for coming on the pod. Mate, I, I've enjoyed it. And, you know, everything I've said is very, very simple, really, isn't it? And, and it's just sitting there anyway. I'm just pointing out the obvious to people. So um, thanks for having me on. I really respect what you are doing. And, um, you know, I know that you've got a hell of an impact in your career. I'm looking forward to continue to follow it. Appreciate it.